This is a picture that you see up on the screen here. This is a picture in the backdrop of um, Herod's temple. There's a whole lot in the Bible that speaks of Herod's temple. The first Passover took place here in... uh, here near this temple. Now look at this. John 2 and 12, verse 25, or, or verse, chapter 2, verse 12. We'll start here. It says, After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. You know the story. And he made a scourge of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and turned over their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews, when they said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the Scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went home, or went up to Jerusalem. Is my next text here. So. After the sign, after the amazing, miraculous task of turning the water into wine, you know, in in our last uh, message, Jesus turned miraculously turned the water into wine. That is his first recorded uh, miracle or his sign. Everything that Jesus did was a sign. It was it was more than just about a miracle but it was a sign of who he was. He had turned the water into good wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the Scripture says that Jesus went down to Capernaum and Jesus was accompanied by his mother and his half-brothers according to the flesh and his disciples Andrew and Simon and Bartholomew and Philip and John, and they stayed there for a brief time, just a few days that they stayed there in Canaan. 
Now, this was the beginning of his signs. That is, Jesus performed his first sign in Cana of Galilee at this wedding of, of unnamed, uh, the, the bride was never even mentioned, the groom was mentioned, but no name was even given. So there was a story uh, behind this. Now, Jesus had just previously providentially called his first five disciples to himself. In the Old Testament, God manifested His glory in a variety of miraculous events. Many miraculous events took place, and it glorified God. And Jesus manifested His glory in that He put, he put His deity on display. For those who ever doubted who Jesus Christ was, if they were in His presence for just a little while, they knew that He was the Son of God. It was proclaimed over and over by His disciples, oftentimes just speaking to them. They said, this truly is the Son of God. So Jesus' signs, they were used to reveal who He was. The world needed to know that He was not a, 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 a fake or He was not an imposter. He was truly the Son of God. Since only God could do such things as Jesus was doing. Very powerful, very powerful. You would think that signs and miracles and wonders would convince people to come to believe. Oh, if only He would show me a miracle, then I would live for Him. If only He would reveal Himself to me, I would get up and start doing a service in His church. But these people, they were not convinced. Most of them were not convinced. Most of these people, they weren't believing in the Lord. They were not believing in the gospel. They saw the miracles and they, and they couldn't deny them. But they didn't come to faith in Jesus Christ. But you know, the Scriptures nowhere mentions than any of those servants at the wedding. Remember, we were talking about the wedding last week. And they knew that the water was poured into the six water pots. They knew that it was water that was drawn and poured in there. And they knew that when the water was tested, that it was good wine. As a matter of fact, it was the best wine that had been at the wedding all evening. But the Scripture doesn't mention a life change in the servants at the wedding who filled those six water pots. They were not persuaded by the miracles that were before them. There's no indication that a revival broke out as a result. There's no indication that as a result of these astounding signs that people came flooding to Jesus. As he does with all non-believers, Satan blinded their eyes so that they could not see. We know, we know of a generation like that, don't we? He has many people's eyes blinded so that they might not see the light of the glory of Christ. So that they will not see the light of the gospel. They don't understand the gospel. It's so strange. And the Bible doesn't, doesn't bring um, peace and joy to them. It doesn't um, 
impress upon them the urgency to live for Christ. For some reason, the devil has their eyes blinded. They have the blinders on. He has the blinders on them. But Jesus' disciples, they did believe. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep know me. My sheep desire me. There was a difference. That's why we could, we could have a, we could have a great outdoor revival or a great outdoor uh, evangelistic event and preach and sing and, and praise in front of thousands of people. And there may not be one that come to Christ. It's not because the Word of God isn't effective, but it's because they will not hear. They will not hear. My sheep hear my voice, he says. So amazingly, Jesus seems to have left Cana with only the same five disciples who he came there with. I know we've went many times to sing in churches around in different places. And oftentimes you wonder, did those people receive anything? Did they receive any kind of encouragement from our singing and our testimonies? Did they receive anything? Sometimes you wonder. Sometimes you, you plant a seed, I understand, and you've got to give it time to grow. God gives the increase. We plant, God gives the increase. But oftentimes you feel like you're the only person in the room when you're trying to minister. But after a few days of staying in Capernaum, it was time to continue the journey on to Jerusalem. Why? Well, the Passover. The Passover of the Jews was near. Help me out back here, Brianna. Verse 13. The Scriptures say the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, the reason why He stayed but a few days at Capernaum was that He wished to be present at the celebration of the Passover of, of the Jews. So, as a reminder, let me say that the Feast of Passover was a celebration in remembrance of Israel's deliverance from the bondage of Pharaoh down there in Egypt. When the Lord sent a death angel over, passing over um, Egypt, and the firstborn of the, of the Egyptians were killed, but he passed over the house of the Israelites. So the Passover of, of the Jews, it, it, it was to be celebrated once a year in Jerusalem around the 14th day of Nisan, which is somewhere between March and April by our calendar. And on that day between 3 o'clock and 6 o'clock, the lamb was slaughtered and the Passover meal would be eaten. Now it's also worth noting that this was the first Passover after Jesus Christ had been baptized by John the Baptist. This is the first one. And the second Passover is mentioned the next year, which was in Luke chapter 6 and verse 1. And the third one was in John chapter 6 and verse 4. Now here's what I want to point out. 
by the fourth Passover. This was when Jesus Christ was crucified. In John eleven fifty five, you'll find that that was the time that he was crucified. So on the 14th day of Nisan, Jerusalem would be heavily crowded with Jewish pilgrims that would come from all over, all over uh, uh, Asia Minor. They would come all over from Rome, from the Rome, uh, Roman world. They'd be coming far distances to celebrate this foremost of Jewish feasts. This was a big deal. Because of the multitudes who would come, Passover meant big business for the city of Jerusalem based upon the merchants. People were in business to accommodate on this day. So since it was impractical for those traveling from distant lands to bring their own animals, here's what would happen. The merchants there, they sold them the animals that were required to be sacrificed. But get this, they sold them with prices that were greatly inflated. They were using this opportunity to make a lot of money. In other words, the merchants were price gouging the Jewish pilgrims. Now John 2.14, you'll notice here, John 2.14, that Christ being made under the law, he observed or he kept the Passover at Jerusalem here. It says he found in the, in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money uh, changers seated at their tables. Now Jesus has taught us over and over by his example that we read in the Word of God. It, a strict observance to the, to the divine institutions and a faithful attendance to religious gatherings or, or religious assemblies. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem when the Passover was at hand that He might be there with the first. It's called the Jews' Passover because it was peculiar to them. Christ is our Passover, right? He's our Passover. He's our passageway from this world to the next one. He's he's, he's the one that that the death angel is not going to be able to hold down. He saved us from that. But upon Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem, Jesus went to the temple. He went to the temple at 12 years old, if you remember back yonder. He went to the temple at 12 years old. And he went every year since he was 12 years old. But here this time, he comes as Messiah. Here's what he found. In the temple, in the temple complex, they had set up shop. And vendors were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the scripture says, and the money changers seated at their were seated at their tables. You see, every Jewish male 20 years of age or older had to pay an annual temple tax. But it could only be paid by using Jewish coins or Tyrian coins. So foreigners had to exchange their money for acceptable coinage. That's what the money changers is about. You bring in this foreign money, that money may not be pure. It may, it may take two coins to be as pure as this coin or to be worth what this coin was. 
So they had to change money out. They had to exchange. And they charged even on that. It wasn't just trading value for value. That was marked up as well. They were price gouging with the sacrifices of the animals. They were price gouging with the exchange in the money, the, 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 the fee to exchange the money. So there was crooked dealing going on everywhere. They charged exorbitant fees for their services because they had a monopoly on the market. Now, the Lord Jesus took action. No doubt he had seen some of this stuff going on before. As a child at 12 years old and every year going to this temple, he had seen this stuff going on. I don't believe he was surprised when he got there. I believe he knew what he was walking into. But Jesus took action against this blatant exploitation of usury. Look at this, John 2, 15. It says, He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. Jesus was appalled. Jesus was outraged by their insensitivity to the temple of God and by their religion that had become external. And materialistic. I know of some other organizations like that today. That profess to be the house of the Lord. And I'm sure you do too. Rather than than it being a place that was sacred. A place that was reverenced. You know what reverence is. When something is holy. When something is right. And something that is that is to be sacred, is to be reverenced and is to be adored. It had become a place that was completely absent of the heartfelt praise of God's people. It had become a place that was absent of fervent prayers of God's people. That's a picture of many uh, uh, of the church world today. The worldly system had made its way into the very temple of God. The people must have been preoccupied with the wheeling and dealing, don't you imagine? After driving them all out of the temple along with the sheep and the oxen, Jesus dumped the coins of the money changers and he flipped over the tables. Now many people have a picture of Jesus as gentle. Jesus is frail and a little anorexic and a little weak. And, but let me tell you, Jesus has the power. There, were, there was enough people around him to stop him if they could. They couldn't stop him from turning over the tables. There were, there were large crowds everywhere. Multitudes had come. And here he was. He came in, turning over their tables, running their sheep, running their oxen. Get your doves and get out. They knew there was something different about this man. He was more than a man. You might wonder, how did Jesus get away With such action. Well, I'll tell you how he got away with it. He got away with it because he's God. And even on the cross, he willingly gave his life. He willingly gave it. Man didn't take it. He gave it. I promise you, they didn't take his life. He gave it freely. He gave it freely. And there is coming a day that that he will render a righteous judgment on the rebellious mankind. 
And it would be far worse for them than being driven out of the temple of God with a whip. When God's judgment comes, they're going to know. The Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. King of kings and Lord of lords. Not our materialistic world, not our money, not our belongings, but Jesus alone is King. John 2.16 says, And those who were selling the doves, He said, Take these things away. Stop making my Father's house a place of business. The temple of God had taken on the resemblance of a stockyard. Animals everywhere, wheeling and dealing going on. The orders came from the Lord Himself to take these things away. Take them out of here. Jesus was, the, uh, Jesus was a loyal son here. He openly calls God Father. Father. Jesus was purging His Father's house of corruption. This action prefigures what He will again do at His second coming. He's going to purge this old world of corruption. So having witnessed the Lord's passion and unwavering fervor and and causing such a stir, notice verse 17. The disciples remembered that that it was written. This is His disciples. It was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. David said the same thing. I hope that I have a zeal for the Lord's house. I hope that you have a zeal for the Lord's house. When you see things that are going on in the Lord's house, I hope that it bothers you. I hope that it shakes you up a little bit because we want holiness. We want righteousness. We want what God wants, don't we? David wrote in Psalm 69.9, here it is, For zeal for your house has consumed me. That's the heart of David. That's the heart of David. The zeal for your house has consumed me. In other words, I am so fired up about your house being in order that it consumes me. It burns me in my heart. I desire. And it says, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So it's natural. It should become natural for us to spiritually get upset when we see the world dishonoring our Lord and Savior, when we see the devil trying to work his way into the church and trying to change things up and trying to trick us up and saying, oh, I, you can go to the church and you can, and you can just flip-flop around and do whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. Just go in and, and have a seat and enjoy yourself. L- listen, the church house is not a movie theater. It's not a coliseum where we gather to watch the games. This is the Lord's house, and it's sacred. Disciples, they saw Jesus' zeal for pure worship. And when He expressed His anger toward the, the dishonoring of His Father's house, they saw that. Jesus demonstrated that. Everything that Jesus did was an example for you to live by. Jesus never, one time that I know of in the Bible anywhere, made a suggestion. God, nowhere in the Bible, not one time, ever made a suggestion. He makes commands. He commands and we say, yes, Lord. So be it, Lord. Amen, Lord. I agree with it, Lord. So 
So all of this commotion that was going on with Jesus going down there and causing such a stir in the temple, as you would know, arriving to investigate the commotion in the temple court, the Jews, here they were, they, the, the Jews that were in authority, they came along and they were challenging Jesus' authority by saying this, verse 18, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things. Now, I'm sure that it, it wasn't a little soft talk. It wasn't just, just a little quiet whisper. But I could see them yelling out at Jesus across the, across the, the, the courtyard there. What's going on? What sign do you have? What sign can you show us as your authority for doing these things? In their hardened hearts of unbelief, the Jewish leaders foolishly asked for signs repeatedly, even though they never accepted the signs that they were given. It was right before their eyes and they never received it. The Jewish leaders, they were, they were truly wicked at heart. And they knew that their greedy corruption of the temple was wrong even though they refused to admit it. Like the Jewish leaders, people today, they constantly ask for signs. They say, show me a miracle. Show me a miracle. Oh, brother, you prayed for this for, for, for years and it never happened. You prayed for wellness, and they passed away. Show me a miracle, and I'll believe. And others say, I read about Jesus' miracles in the Bible, but I wasn't there, so I'm not going to believe those. I didn't see them with my own eyes. I didn't see those things with my own eyes. I'm not going to believe in Christ until I see Him with my own eyes. Till I hear Him with my own ears. Till I place my finger into His side. And into the nail, the nail prints in His hands. Does that sound familiar? I'm not going to believe in Jesus until I see Him in person. Till I see a miracle done. In His name, today. These people need to consider what Paul said. They need to consider what Paul said when, when he went to Athens and he addressed the philosophers on Mars Hill. Here's what he said here in Acts 17 and 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him, Jesus Christ, from the dead. So in response to the Jewish leaders questioning His authority, here's what Jesus said in verse 19. Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus would later be falsely accused of saying, I'm going to tear down the temple. 
He was falsely accused of that. The temple that was standing in Jesus' time was destroyed by the Romans, though, in A.D. 70. Many evangelical Christians are waiting eagerly for the Jews to build a new temple, seeing that as a sign of the end of the time, as a sign of the end of age. But they fail to understand that the temple already has been rebuilt. That temple is Christ. Christ is the temple. The the locus of the living presence of God in the midst of the people and the rebuilding of the temple took place on the day of His resurrection. The temple has been resurrected. So Jesus' disciples realized what temple he He was referring to after three days in the tomb. But on the third day, He rose victoriously to life. He rose from the grave. The devil would try to have you convinced that he really didn't raise from the the grave. But he did. The devil is a liar and the father of it. The Jewish authorities, they were baffled by this statement and completely missed his point. You mean to tell me, I'm getting ahead of myself, verse 20. The Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the scriptures say his disciples remembered that he said this and they believed the scriptures and the word which Jesus had spoken. Again, it was not until after the resurrection that the disciples understood everything clearly. It's going to come a day that we're going to understand things more clearly. There's much in the Bible. Though I try to preach it as best I understand it, there's many things that I don't understand. There are many questions that are left to be answered. But in the sweet by and by, we're going to be given the answers. And it's going going to be joy unspeakable and full of glory, that's for certain. And I trust Him with it, don't you? I don't have to have all the details. I trust Him with it. I just trust Him. I would live for him no matter what. But it took a while for the the disciples to understand. It was about three and a half years later. And only then did they make sense of this prophecy and they recognized Jesus' resurrection power as a clear indication of his deity. And that is what John, the apostle, is stressing throughout the book of John is He is the Christ. And this has been written that you might believe that He is the Son of God. John the Baptist, over and over, he stressed that I am not He. I am, in fact, am not even worthy to to unlatch the thong of His sandals. There's one who comes after me that is greater than I. Verse 23 says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. So Jesus remained in Jerusalem. And even after his clearing out the temple for Passover and the feast of unleavened bread that immediately followed, And during that time, he performed a number of miracles. All of them aren't written down specifically. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches that 
All of the books in the world could not contain all the things that the Lord has done. All of the things that He's done. And I believe every day that, it, that, it, that it's becoming more and more uh, of miracles that are being performed. More and more blessings that He is doing as we speak. They could never be all written down. Many believe because of the signs. But such faith was shallow. Show me a sign and I'll believe you. It was superficial. It was disingenuous. It was not true saving faith. True saving faith. And there is a difference. John 2 and 24 says, But Jesus on His part was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men. And because He did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for He Himself knew what is was in man. The language that is used here is saying that He did not believe in them. They believed because they saw a miracle. They believed because they saw a miracle. You see, they believed in Him, but He didn't believe in them. In other words, to put it frankly, their faith was not saving faith, which, which He realized, of course, and He knew what was in their hearts. The next person that come along that, that demonstrated an ability or some kind of miraculous trick, they would believe in them too. Those are the kind of people that, that mess with Ouija boards and, and witchcraft and, and other things that, 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 uh, that, that's trickery of the devil to make people believe. Horoscopes and all that kind of stuff. But Jesus wouldn't uh, entrust Himself to those whose faith was not genuine. And the opposite is also true. He will entrust those who have genuine faith. Do you know that? If you have faith in Christ, genuine faith, He trusts you. What it means for Jesus to entrust Himself to people is probably best understood in the light of His Word to His disciple at the Last Supper. Look at this, and I'm about done. John 15 and 14, He says, look at this, this is good. These are Jesus' words. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, if you do what I command you, no longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing. For I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father. I have made, made known to you. That's a very, very personal statement from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's a very personal statement that ought to bring joy to our hearts. Lord, we're in a wilderness. Lord, we struggle. Lord, we see a world that is falling all to pieces. Make America great again is what we hear. Make America great again and, and it's catching fire. It's, it's catching on all around the world. I know some things that could make the country a lot better. And it would be faith in Jesus Christ. You want to make America and the world great? Believe in Jesus Christ. Get ready for His, His coming is soon. It'll make you love your neighbor. It'll make you love your wife. It'll make you love your children. It'll make you sacrifice yourself for others. It'll put our priorities in the order that God wants them put in. If we only, if we only trust and believe in Him. You know, to be filled with the Holy Spirit 
is to be empty of ourselves. That's what that in fact is what being filled with the with the Holy Spirit means is to be empty of yourself. Be obedient to God. If you're obedient to God and you're and you're and you're um, uh, putting your total trust in Him, don't worry. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You've got the goods. Rejoice in that and be glad. Stand with me if you will tonight.